Uh, welcome to the UWA Alumni Voice podcast. So this is the first podcast in a series featuring TEDxUWA past speakers. I'm Leanne Jang, uh, the Scientific Advisor for TEDxCWA, and I'm currently a PhD student at the University of Western Australia. So just to give you guys all a bit of a background, um, I've been part of the committee since the inception of our organisation, um, in which in the previous years I've sat as president and a chairperson. So at TEDxCWA, we host TED-like talks to focus on the impressive work and the inspiring stories from UWA students, alumni and our researchers. So we have now teamed up with the Young Alumni Network to continue this conversation sparked by our alumni speakers in this series. So every fortnight, a TEDxCWA member will bring on an alumnus who has previously spoken at one of our TEDxCWA events. From here, we'll discuss their experience as a speaker and what they've been up to since their talk. If you're interested in attending a future event, we'll also be running our first ever virtual event called TEDxCWA Salon Revival on the 23rd of July. And you can find out more on our Facebook and Instagram pages. The event is free and we'll have two speakers who will be discussing the development in telehealth in response to COVID-19 and provide some advice for students who will be graduating in a forecasted recession. So speaking of previous speakers, um, it is with my great pleasure to be hosting this podcast with current UWA Forest Research Fellow, Dr. David Gozard. Hello, thank you for having me. No worries. So David, um, just to give the speakers and our audience a bit of a background, could you kind of give us a brief summary of the TEDx talk you gave for us and some context around that talk? So I did my PhD in uh, working on developing technologies for the Square Kilometre Array Radio Telescope. And so my TEDx talk was an overview of the Square Kilometre Array Telescope, what we, the science we want to do with it, what we hope to discover with it, where we're doing it, why we're doing it, and why people should be interested in this huge collaborative astronomy project. Well, that's fantastic. So um, I know some people may not know what the Square Kilometre Array is. Could you give a background on what the purpose of that research project is and the collaborations that you have ongoing at the moment? So the SKA is going to be, when it's completed, the world's largest radio telescope. So basically the bigger a telescope is, the more powerful it is and the deeper it can see into the universe. And what we're doing is building hundreds and it will eventually expand to thousands of individual radio dishes and radio antennas and then spreading them over hundreds of kilometres. And we can use that to synthesise together a radio telescope that has the resolving power of something hundreds of kilometres in extent, of a single dish hundreds of kilometres in extent. Uh, and that's quite a technological challenge to build something that needs to be so precise over such huge distances. And that's where my work came in, trying to synchronise all of these antennas to the fractions of a billionth of a second needed to pull that data in all at the same time and construct it into one image from these hundreds of antennas. That seems, oh, that sounds very impressive. Um, so going on kind of like the engineering and physics side of that, what kind of like techniques or skills do you need more of? Is that the engineering side or the physics side? A bit of both. So I studied in my undergraduate both mechanical engineering and physics and the balance of the two set me up well um, to do this project. So I did, uh, my PhD was generally experimental physics. And experimental physics involves a lot of theory, but also a lot of getting in the lab and actually doing engineering. But it's smaller scale engineering. I'm not building a big 
um, plant, I am building a one-off prototype and getting it working, taking it out to the SKA sites where the uh, prototype antennas are currently being constructed and testing it there. Um, so the skills I needed were from basic under physics understanding of optics and wave mechanics and a little bit of quantum mechanics, all the way up and how radio astronomy works, all the way to engineering stuff like just being able to machine a block of aluminium and design something in computer-aided design, things like that. Oh, that sounds, that sounds fantastic. So in terms of kind of like getting all of this information together, how do you develop kind of like new technology and what is your kind of like step-by-step -step process to developing these new technologies and prototypes and things like that? As a PhD student, it was very much a case of I came into the project knowing nothing, if extremely little, having those background skills, but not having the faintest clue where to start or what to do. And with PhD, that's the point of having a good supervisor and a collaboration. So the SKA is, uh, has, now has 12 member countries. At the time, it had 10 full member countries, and I, I was working with... Um, uh, uh, people from about 20 different countries and a total of about 600 different engineers. I didn't meet all of them, but um, that's the scale of the project. So people from the CSIRO in Australia and people from the University of Manchester in England and South Africa, um, uh, collaborations with uh, America's radio astronomers, uh, people who have the bits and pieces of expertise who we needed to draw on to develop this new system and um, very importantly was my supervisor who, as an experienced academic, has that experience to get a student started, point them in the right direction and give them guidance on how to do this. So nitty gritty in the lab stuff, plugging away, trying to work out why that signal's there, why won't it go away, it's annoying, I want that signal, not that signal. Trying to get the electronics working is the, the PhD students work alone but um, it, the PhD students sitting as part of a bigger team that's collaborating together to get this work done. Yeah, so speaking of collaboration and, and supervision of students, kind of what's your opinion or role of how important a supervisor is in terms of guiding the PhD student? Or do you think it's in some fields of science or even outside of science, not having such a large collaboration or not having um, nitty-gritty, yes, do this, do that, is beneficial. So like, what's kind of your take on that balance between not so much micromanaging, but micromanaging and being a little bit hands-off? I think it's going to be different for everyone, but for me, having a good supervisor was very, very important. I was interested in a lot of different fields of experimental physics. And what it boiled down to was I picked my topic based on having a good supervisor. I had done a summer project with the person who became my um, PhD supervisor. So had spent a summer with him, knew him to be a good supervisor. And so I stuck with him. So for me, having a good supervisor was important because a good supervisor will give you the right amount of guidance, um, the right amount of freedom to do your own things and break stuff and um, form your own projects and collaborations, but also um, giving you opportunities, finding opportunities for you to go. And for me, he, uh, my supervisor sent me to the National Physical Laboratory in the UK for three months to work with people there and learn what I could from them. Um, so a good supervisor will give you the right amount of guidance and find opportunities for you. Um, if you are 
someone who is very capable of being independent from day one. You might not come to rely on a supervisor as much, but still having a good supervisor is good because it makes life a lot easier for a PhD student. Yes, I can imagine, uh, you know, PhD students have very, very difficult life so far. So having that extra help and as much help as you can is always beneficial. Mm. Yeah. But basically, I think everyone's going to be different. So yeah. you, you know thyself. You have to know what's going to work for you. Maybe going into a PhD, you won't. Uh, and if you're not sure, find a good supervisor. Yes. So you said that you found your supervisor doing a summer kind of internship program. Um, were you during your undergraduate doing a summer internship program? Yes. Um, I, uh, so the School of Physics, it's uh, Department of Physics, I think, uh, but it's changed name like three times in my time here, runs uh, summer studentships, as does my current place, ICRA. So a lot of the research departments and faculty seem to run summer internships and they are very, very valuable. That was... That internship um, was just six weeks. I, I think I stayed on an extra two weeks just because it was good and fun and I was enjoying myself. Um, so I only spent two months there, but I learned a huge amount. I, it showed me that, yes, doing a PhD in experimental physics was what I wanted to do. Um, I think these are very, very valuable opportunities for students at UWA and there should be as many of these opportunities as possible and students should leap on these opportunities and get as many of them as they can to learn broadly, find out what they're interested in, find out what paths are available to them. So what would your advice be to undergraduates and maybe potentially even high school students on finding these opportunities or pursuing these pathways? Uh, keep an eye on your emails largely. Join, join the clubs because a lot of the, uh, these opportunities will come through or be announced through things like the engineering club, the science club, the physics club, uh, computer science, uh, computer club, um, things like that. Uh, so the university's got lots of clubs like that. And then just um, if you're a physics student, you'll be on the physics student mailing list and you'll be notified of these opportunities or a lecturer. Make sure you go to your lectures because a lecturer will often say, we have this opportunity coming up in the department at the end of the year. I'm looking for a good student to do this work. Um, so you just have to be paying attention to the university's communication channels and see what's coming Oh, that's awesome. So you're talking about kind of like having a, a good student um, have these opportunities. What are your thoughts, opinions, and even advice on kind of grades over extracurriculars and kind of that balance between the two? It's always difficult. Very, as I was going through my undergrad, I was very grades focused and um, just trying to get the highest grade I could. Um, and now I look back at it and think, I, I didn't need to do that. I could have learnt more broadly and had a bit more fun and forgot about the grades to a certain extent. It, it is, it's a difficult balance to strike, I think. Even looking back on it, I think any student's going to have a, a difficult time striking that balance because if you want to get into a PhD program, you need to achieve above a certain average grade and there are, there are various other things that can feed in. Like if you go and do a summer internship, contribute to a piece of research and get on the paper that is then published as a result of that research. All that then gives you additional points to get into a PhD. And so you could lose a few marks here and not worry. 
Um, but it's always going to be something that's tricky to balance because um, position uh, PhD positions are in high demand. There's lots of good students out there who want positions. Um, generally, I think a lot of people look back on their undergraduate. I, don't, I didn't need to pursue marks that hard. It really didn't make a difference in the end. So the important thing is le uh, what you're studying, try to understand it. Don't just rote learn it, try to understand what is going on. If you understand it, the marks will come because you'll understand how to drive the solution, work the problem, and just follow as many of these extracurricular things as you can. It's not marked, it doesn't, uh, a summer internship doesn't contribute to my marks, it's over the summer, it's not, well it was actually interfering with my honours research, my honours research took a, a bit of a back seat while I did this uh, summer internship, so I probably could have got a better mark on my honours research if I had given that more time, but it was very, very valuable and has led me down the path I've gone. So find these extracurricular things and jump into them. Yeah, I think that's some really good, like, sage advice as I know, you know, a lot of students at, in the university and undergraduate level worry a lot about getting into honours, worry a lot about getting into a PhD, and sometimes they may suffer from not being able to enjoy the undergraduate as much as they could. So, you know, like you were saying, going to those clubs, you know, even potentially extracurriculars and sports. So during your undergraduate, how much were you able to participate in extracurriculars, so like joining clubs, organisations? sports and things like that? I joined a lot in my first year and um, was very active in uh, several different clubs, things like physics, science, engineering, other ones um, during my first year. And then it petered off a bit as things got harder. But then in my final, uh, so because I did a double degree, I was here for six years studying. So in my final year and a half, things got a bit easier as those last few units um, weren't quite as intense or at least I'd learnt the system and how to manage the university system and navigate it um, so I was, didn't feel as stressed at least and so I had a bit more time to really get involved and uh, serve on committees of clubs and things like that which turned out to be very very valuable. Uh, for the path I wound up taking the most valuable things were the research opportunities and internships that come along um, but certainly being a member of clubs because opportunities will come through the clubs. Uh, companies will want to work with the engineering club or work with the computer club to do something. There's, if you join the computer club, you will develop certain skills. If you volunteer to maintain a server that are uh, then very valuable in the workforce or in research. Yeah, definitely agree. So like even in a PhD, there's a lot of discussion around translation of skills. So you may not necessarily stay in academia um, or you may not necessarily stay in research, but all the skills that you have learned so far up until that point can be used as a consultant or, you know, in a completely different job area from what you're intending on doing. So I suppose in terms of like the soft skills, what are some of the critical soft skills that you think any student or any PhD student should keep in mind to try and learn or to have kind of like in the back of their head to think about? In terms of soft skills, uh, it's communication and project management. So a PhD is a, a long, hard project. It's minimum three years. It is by definition something that has never been done before by anyone on this planet. And you, it's your project and you need to manage it 
from start to finish, from knowing almost nothing going in at the start to being the world expert in it at the end. That is a huge learning curve that you also have to project manage. And that is a good project management as a key soft skill that you should develop and hopefully develop through your PhD. And communication. We have to communicate our research to other researchers, to the public, um, to our superiors, to our family and friends. And uh, good communication is a very important soft skill to learn um, for a, a PhD graduate or uh, an academic. You need to be able to communicate well to someone who's not immediately in your field of research in order to get grant funding and progress your career. Outside of it, if you're working in industry, you need to be able to explain to your bosses or to anyone else what you're doing and why you're doing it. And it helps if it's clear and concise. Yeah, I think that's a really, really good point that you make in communication as a lot of, I suppose, potentially older scientists don't focus so much on that communication, especially to the lay lay audience. So what kind of opportunities did you do um, other than TEDx as a TEDx speaker to enhance your communication skills? So I'm very interested in science communication and just have been for a while. So I did take science communication as an elective. Um, so that was, that was another opportunity that I had to just broaden my experience and learn from professional science communicators, uh, particularly, so that's at an undergrad level, but at a um, at PhD level, there's a master's level, there's things like three minute thesis, um, where you explain your research in three minutes. There's FameLab, which is a very similar thing. Again, it's explain your research in three minutes, but it's a different audience demographic. Um, and through opportunities like, uh, and through those things, I was then given more opportunities because I'd uh, stood up at three minute thesis and had spoken about SKA, which is um, a state science scholar, Western Australian state um, science priority. I got to go and speak, uh, basically redo the presentation at Parliament House. Um, so other opportunities flow on from these things. Um, thanks to FameLab, I then got to give presentations uh, over two years at the Perth Science Festival uh, one year, and then I was asked back again the following year. Um, so the, these opportunities, once you start taking them, they, if you do it well or you're doing it about something that someone's interested in, they will snowball pretty quickly. Uh, eventually I got to the point where I was on a, a Qantas 747 flying over Antarctica doing physics demonstrations for some high school kids on board. So it, it gets pretty exciting pretty quickly. So I, I was, because I was interested in science communication, I was always on the lookout for these sort of opportunities and applying for them and uh, so halfway through my PhD I was applying for half of the opportunities and the other half of the opportunities people were coming to me and saying we know you're interested in this do you want to get on a 747 and go to Antarctica brilliant yes please get me on now I suppose if someone is a little bit worried about the 747 and they want to take a few steps back so for example like the 3MT or the Fame Lab What's your advice to them if they don't think their communication may be up to par, or up to scratch, to be comfortable speaking in front of a lay audience? Comfort is a different thing, but it's um, you need to build that experience. And 3MT and FameLab are ways to do that. There's, 
it's yeah it doesn't feel great if you don't make it through to the next round but it's important to get in there and have that experience communicating your research to someone who's not in your field clearly and concisely in three minutes is a very difficult thing to do and so just sitting down and actually trying to write a three-minute thesis presentation and practicing it and then giving it and getting feedback from other 3MT presenters or from the judges is very, very useful. And then you can take that and do it better the next year or you then go and do FameLab, which is similar but different in some ways. And so you can take what you learned in one place and apply it to another. So by doing things like three-minute thesis, FameLab, Earth Science Festival, TEDx, all of them were learning opportunities. I um, learnt something new at each and every one. And uh, all of them I would like to do again because I would like to take what I've learnt and what I know now and try it again in a different way. Because I've, I've learnt and I think I've improved since then. So for the audience who may not know, we found David through 3MT actually, um, back in 2016, I believe it was. Yep. And so I just wanted to ask you what, did you find different about the experience of 3MT and being a TEDxCWA speaker? What did you find difficult? What did you find easy? And kind of what achievements do you find that you had gotten out of that uh, personally? So both, the, there's similarities and differences between the two. So three-minute thesis, uh, and it largely revolves around well, the format as well as the audience. Um, three-minute thesis, you've got three minutes to explain your research clearly and concisely and in a way that makes it interesting. So people learn something in three minutes. And that's a very difficult thing to do uh, because your field is laden with jargon and background knowledge that you absorb from papers. And even someone who's studying a different type of physics from me is not going to have the faintest clue what I'm talking about in many uh, situations unless I break it down and explain it to them. Um, and doing them three minutes is extremely difficult. Uh, with three-minute thesis, the audience, though, is generally academics. Uh, the audience was, at least when I was doing it a few years ago, was largely comprised of um, academics who were the, the judges were academics from around the university. Other interested academics had come in, other PhD students. There were very few members of the general public, so they at least had a research background. They knew what research involved. With Things like FameLab, again, it's three, you're researching three minutes, but now you've got an audience that's the general public. But again, they are not uh, a broad spectrum of the general public. They are people who are interested in coming along one night and hearing about research. And it's the same with TEDx. Uh, it's similar with TEDx. Um, the, you've got a, a different uh, demographic. You've got a different section of the population. They may not be there specifically to hear about physics, but they're obviously interested in hearing about these ideas coming from researchers at the university. So your audience changes and you need to tailor your explanations and what you're talking about and the theme of what you're talking about to your audience. And that can be very, very difficult, especially when you're doing it for the first time, you don't really know what the audience is like. But even so, whether you're explaining it in three minutes or have 15 minutes, uh, it's still very, very difficult because you need to get just the right balance. If you, you, if you dumb it down too much, you, you can't speak down to people. You don't want to make it babyish. You don't want to talk at an adult like they're a six-year-old. 
Otherwise, they'll come out and think that that was very patronizing. Liked it. Whereas if you uh, aim it too high and expect them to come in knowing too many things or pick up too many new terms and ideas too quickly, then you're going to lose them. And so finding that balance of um, giving them new information and new ideas at the right rate is very difficult. And it depends on how long you've got the format and the audience. So for your TEDx experience, um, what did you want the members of the audience to walk away with? So like you say, you don't want to patronize them, um, but you don't want them to learn all these new things that will just kind of escape them. So what did you, what responses did you want to receive from your talk? I wanted the audience to walk away pretty much just thinking this is really cool and interesting. Astronomy can be hard to justify. Why are 10 nations pooling together to spend a billion dollars on studying dust and gas in the distant universe? How does that help me? Well, basically, apart from things like technological spin-offs like Cyro radio astronomers developing modern Wi-Fi that I'm using right now to talk to you. Um, people are interested. People want to, as humans, we want to know where we have come from, how our universe began, how it evolved, how we came to be here. And so I wanted to explain that in my talk. Why are we undertaking this project why do i think it's important and hopefully i can convince you that it's important and interesting and i want those people to then go back out into the community and when they hear ska on the news they think oh yes i know about that that's really cool or they go and tell their friends over the water cooler at lunchtime or uh, tell their uncle when they come over to visit all that sort of thing they just spread this interest uh in what we're doing so talking about interest, um, how did you get interested, I suppose, in physics and engineering in general? So kind of like rewinding the clock back to maybe high school or even earlier. So what got you interested in this field? Uh, launching a rocket at about the age of 12. Before that, I wanted to be David Attenborough. Um, so so my, my childhood was very much, um, I wanted to be Les Hiddens, the Bush Tucker man, and then later on, uh, David Attenborough. Yeah. And uh, I did a, a school extracurricular course where we got to build and launch model rockets. That was really cool. So went to the hobby shop and bought more model rockets and saw uh, model airplanes. And I was like, oh, those are cool. And so I got interested in the engineering of um, aerospace and aviation. So around the age of 12, uh, started reading up on it and just being very interested in that sort of thing. And so... Um, I started getting more and more interested in physics and engineering. And so by the end of high school, I knew physics and engineering was what I wanted to do. I didn't know particularly what. I knew I was interested in things like wind turbines and rockets. I uh, just wanted to do something at university that would take me in that general direction. I didn't know whether I was going to be working for a company that built wind turbines or something like SpaceX. I'll just see where I just knew I wanted to do physics and engineering, see where it took me. And during my undergrad, I decided, actually, a PhD looks pretty cool. I really want to do that. Le learning, uh, learning something, building new things is the kind of engineering and physics I'm into. I want to do this. So during, during undergraduate, so you're saying that, you know, model rockets kind of led you into your path um, into physics and engineering. During your undergraduate, did any one person or any group of people influence you to take this current path? 
um, that you have or to influence you and to make decisions for your future career? Or was that more intrinsic for you? I can't pinpoint one person. It was generally um, several people and lecturers over the course of my undergraduate. So I, I fully expected to uh, go out and get a job in engineering. And I did my engineering internship and thought, mm, actually, physics research is more fun. And then I did, following year, I did the internship uh, in the Department of Physics. And thought, yes, this is a lot more fun. And I, I just, along the way, I just had good and inspiring lecturers who just made engineering and physics seem really cool. Oh, we're shooting lasers at water to analyze the size of bubbles in it so we can work out what sort of sediments and things are falling out of the water. And so engineering side of things or uh, physics side of things, we are building this radio telescope to study this or this big laser to study that, uh, or this quantum computer over here. So there were inspiring and good lecturers who were doing very, very interesting things, and they made it sound interesting, they communicated it well. I thought, yeah, I want to learn more about that, I want to be a part of that. Um, and as I started to solidify on the idea of wanting to do a PhD, I had the person who eventually became my PhD supervisor because he did supervise me for the internship. I could ask him about it. I went to other lecturers and said, Look, this is kind of what I'm interested in. Can you tell me what a PhD is like, what it's about, what's involved? And so there were certainly people who helped me along, uh, along the way who I went to and asked questions directly. It was mainly having in interesting and inspiring lecturers who are doing really cool things and they were excited about what they were doing. So now that you've progressed and you're now, I suppose, your supervisor's colleague, I, I would say, what's kind of, what is the work that you're doing and kind of what do you expect to be one of the most interesting things to come out of it in, say, the next five or ten years? Yes, I've somewhat moved on from radio telescopes. So, so the technology I, do, I helped develop for the square kilometre array can be applied to other systems, namely uh, ground high precision measurements between the ground and satellites, which is important for um, not only fundamental physics, we can test Einstein's theory of gravity to much greater precision than ever before, things like that, uh, test if fundamental constants of the universe are changing over the eons. Uh, so really cool fundamental physics, but also applied things like geodesy, so mapping the gravity of the Earth, which you can then use to map all bodies or the flow of underground aquifers, work out where the water's going, so environmental monitoring. So with these high precision measurements, you can, oh, the, these technologies, you can then make very high precision measurements to and from satellites. And that's what, uh, when I say we, my uh, group are trying to do. Uh, in collaboration with others around the world. Um, the trick is the atmosphere gets in the way. The, the turbulence of the atmosphere um, reduces the precision of our measurement signal, and so we need to work out ways to fix that. The uh, turbulence points our laser beam off target and um, adjusts its frequency slightly, which ruins the precision of our measurements, and so I'm develop helping develop technologies to get around that. Oh, that sounds absolutely amazing. So in, in terms of that technology, how can that be, uh, I suppose, possible to be translated into everyday sort of 
um, technology that someone may use. Is that a possibility or will it be purely for scientific research modeling um, and more large scale products? So there are situations where you could use this sort of technology to increase the data rate of your uh, internet slightly, but it's um, the first thing we'll notice it in is the technologies we don't directly use. So it's extremely important to basically everybody on earth that we know where our water is, where our resources are, what our environment is doing. So the environmental monitoring and things like that are going to be uh, crucial. Um, and people will get a direct everyday benefit out of this. They just won't use the technology directly. But we're also trying to develop this for optical free space communications. Currently, we use lasers to transmit internet data over fiber optics under the ground. And we use radio waves to transmit through the air to our phones or to satellites. Uh, lasers, light can carry a lot more information than a radio wave can. Uh, tens of thousands of times more information. And the amount of information we're generating, uh, both in the internet and out on spacecraft and being down to Earth is getting bigger and bigger and bigger every week. We need much higher rate ways of transmitting data for, uh, between ground stations or from satellites to ground stations or satellite to satellite. And that's also what we're trying to do. Um, these technologies can help us uh, bypass the shimmering of the atmosphere, which can point your beam off and um, also ruin the, uh, decrease the data rates that you can transmit effectively. So we're trying to improve these free space communications, as we call them, get, uh, subtract the shimmering of the atmosphere, suppress the shimmering of the atmosphere so that we can transmit as much data through a, with a laser through the air as we can down a fiber optic cable from one city to another. Uh, so that is something that hopefully in uh, 10 years, you might be actually driving a direct benefit of your YouTube video will be beamed via satellite down to a ground station in your city and then trunked to you somehow through fiber optics or through radio waves after that, or maybe even building to building lasers. So I suppose a good thing is to expect nice high speed internet in Perth. As opposed That's what we're aiming for. Oh, that, that would be fantastic. <laughs> High-speed internet, please, yes. <laughs> so I know you talked a lot about collaboration and collaboration with scientists um, outside of Australia. What's your opinions on having a lot more space exploration or science exploration and research funding in Australia um, coming from our own government, coming from our own resources? It's about time. We're Until the uh, Australian Space Agency was announced. We were the only OECD country without a space agency. Mm. Space agencies aren't all about sticking people on a rocket and sending them to the moon and floating around and having fun in zero gravity. Um, space agents, uh, space is critical to the way uh, our modern society works. We need satellites to do environmental monitoring for uh, the health of our environment, crop monitoring, water, weather monitoring, so we know where the water's going, things like that. Search and even just things like search and rescue. Space is extremely important. Um, other countries, because so China, uh, Japan, the European Union, they have more data and uh, about Australia's uh, 
crops from space than Australia does. They have a better ability to predict our crop yields than we do. Space is extremely important. Ethiopia had a space agency before Australia did because oh, wow. that's how important space agencies are. They, they are about supporting the industries and technology that support us, whether it's growing food, whether it's finding resources. NASA spend a tiny fraction of their budget on space flight and they do a lot more environmental monitoring, weather monitoring, developing new technologies, testing aircraft safety, all that sort of thing. Uh, developing new technologies like these um, uh, free space optical communications I'm trying to develop. Uh, the, the European Space Agency, NASA, um, the CNES, the French Space Agency, the Russian Space Agency, they're all funding things like that because they're taking this leap into technology that is needed now for the future of space exploration and then it will filter down into our everyday lives. Having a space agency is something Australia's been missing. Hopefully it will um, give us our own sovereign ability to launch our own satellites, have our own satellites, develop our own satellites and ability to monitor and serve our own country rather than buying data from other countries. So, yeah, going kind of going off of that point in terms of this may be become a little bit more political, um, but in terms of flying things and satellites, um, getting satellites up into space, in terms of responsibility of airspace, um, responsibility of what we leave out in space. Um, how do you view that as from the scientist's point of view and kind of like a government agency point of view? How should we discard of you know space junk? Because there is a lot of space junk out there at the moment. So kind of what are your opinions yeah. on that? From a practical point of view, we need to do something about it. We, uh, all future satellites that have to be launched have to have a way of bringing them down or deorbiting themselves or even just naturally deorbiting within a certain amount of time after their useful life is completed um, because it's getting way too crowded up there. And if something goes wrong, which it could in the coming years, we will lose a lot of satellites in low Earth orbit and we will lose that weather monitoring and uh, environmental monitoring and exploration capability. A lot of the technologies and we rely on that run our society today will be lost to us until we do something about it and it's becoming more and more crucial but the problem is there's no money in it it's extremely expensive to fix and there's no money to be made by fixing it so no one wants to take responsibility for it no one wants to take responsibility for then satellites that their company or their country may have launched decades ago or that some other country or company launched whenever it's uh, there, there's no incentive yet mm. and there needs to be an incentive yeah so I've, I've heard a fact and maybe you could fact check me on this but apparently it costs a million dollars a day us to run one of the gps satellites is that true or not i don't know it probably sounds about right because mm. um yeah so there's a, a fleet we there's uh, you need about 24 minimum to provide global coverage so there's 30 something up there um they are basically flying atomic clocks, so they are flying high precision measure, uh, measurement devices. And they all need to be very carefully synchronized. There's a lot of mathematics to do in keeping them synchronized, keeping their measurements accurate so that they provide accurate positioning for us. But when you 
to sort of step back and think about it, that's actually a small price to pay for what it's giving us. Mm. So yeah, fine. Okay. So one G I have no idea whether it's true, but it sounds about right. One GPS satellite, a million dollars a day. That's something like 30, $40 million a day to run the entire fleet. That's a circa a billion dollars, a bit one somewhere between one and $5 billion to run it over the course of a year. Um, everyone on the planet can use it. Anyone on the planet can use GPS for free. Uh, it's, it's needed for safe navigation of aircraft and boats. And as we're getting autonomous cars and I'm using GPS on my phone to uh, find my way around the city. Um, it's farmers are using it more and more for uh, precision crop planting so they can increase yields. GPS is extremely important to the way our modern world works. And so, yes, that sounds about right for the, the, the amount of effort it takes to keep something like this running, but also it sounds like a very small price to pay for what it gives us. Mm. Yeah. Talking about, I suppose, like small price to pay kind of like, what are your thoughts on funding as a global effort for space endeavor? Do you think um, it should be a collaborative event or do you think it's more kind of like, you know, the, the cold war race between the U S and Russia having it being very siloed because right now, everyone in science has talked more about collaboration and being able to achieve in science is through collaboration. How about kind of like the space space side of things? I think um, collaboration should be the way to go. Ideally collaboration should be the way to go, but you want, I think you want a bit of um, competition to spur things on a bit, but it's possible to achieve without, uh, it's, it's possible to achieve without national borders. Things like in Australia, we have several states, but we can have a bit of competition between each state, but essentially we're all pulling together as one nation. And it goes the same for America, several states, one nation, the cantons of Switzerland. Um, uh, so it's possible for us to all pull together. Or China, Russia, USA, Japan, everyone can get involved in the same space exploration program, pool their resources, pool their brains and achieve it. But there can be a bit of competition along the way. Like we'll develop a couple of different rockets, see who's is best. We'll, um, uh, we're currently, my group and I are working with um, colleagues at the French Space Agency and we're developing two systems in parallel. And we're not even really thinking of it as though we're competing with each other, but we can then take the best bits from each one and overall build something faster and better. So I, I think a balance needs to be struck. Ideally, we should all be working together on this, but there can be a bit of competition to spur us along. Hmm. Yeah, so I suppose, like in, internally within some teams, um, whether that be in space or outside of the space scientific field, there's a lot of not a lot of inequality, but there is some inequality and there's some differing relationships. And going off of that, there's, it's, it appears to have a lot of politics and science nowadays, or it's becoming a bit more apparent. How do you, as kind of like a young researcher, deal with that inequality or trying to get everyone to collaborate, working together and things like that? Um, I suppose that, uh, I try to learn as much as I can and be aware of it. Mm. Um, from point of view of inequality and inequity, such as uh, representation of minorities in science, mm. things like that, 
as a straight white man, I am probably the least directly experienced in it. And so I just try to remember that I need to listen to others. I try to be aware of my biases. There are opportunities of various training courses that universities um, encourage us to attend. So at this stage, I'm learning and just trying to be aware of it. Um, I certainly don't know how to solve the problem. I can do my little bit, and right now that's all I know I can do. Yeah, I think it's a bit of an important conversation to have in this current current minefield that we're having this year. Uh, a lot of things are going on. So mm. I think that's the, the, the best advice I think anyone could have is to go in thinking, all right, let's just be open and, and collaborative, be aware of everyone's situation um, going into you know, science or even any other field, um, that's, that's a say, because with collaboration, you will have more opportunities um, and giving more opportunities to people. There are future endeavors that could be made a bit earlier. I, I could, I could only imagine at least. Yeah, so absolutely. Going off of kind of future endeavors, what are your kind of future endeavors in the next say 20 or 30 years? What do you hope to achieve from your career? Oh, if we're dreaming that big, 20 or yes. 30 years, I, I want to see grow out of the work my group and I are doing and the people we're collaborating with in the space sector. I would like to see a, uh, a boom, a big growth in Western Australian and more broadly Australian involvement in space. Hmm. We have a lot of capability. We have a lot of bright people and we have world uh, world unique opportunities we have vast tracts of desert where we can put radio telescopes and optical telescopes and ground stations for satellites and we have ex expertise in the right fields um we have the right um infrastructure to support it we have the opportunity to become a big player in certain aspects of space technology and the space exploration i want to see that boom uh, i'd like to in 20 or 30 years see Australia and Western Australia is a big space hub. I think that's a very, very good goal um, to, to see. And what are your kind of like thoughts on not so much competing, but comparing to things like SpaceX, being able to reland a Falcon, you know, rocket ship or being able to have those resources. How do you see us kind of comparing with them in that 20 or 30 year time span? As someone who got into engineering and physics by launching rockets, I would love for Australia to have its own launch capability and being do, uh, do exactly that. Uh, Australia should have its own space shuttle, but realistically, that's not the way we're going to go, uh, especially if we're collaborating and pooling our resources. We don't need each country to have its own uh, rocket launch capability or multiple of them. And Australia is certainly a good place geographically to launch rockets from we, we would make a we would have a very good spaceport we should put one at Woomera and one somewhere in northern territory or the Queensland and would be a great place to launch rockets from we have a very low population density and ideal geography and locations uh, across the planet um, but from a practical point of view we don't need it we don't need our own launch capability. We just need to work with countries and companies that do. And we should build on our, we should find our own niche, build on our current expertise, 
we have expertise in supporting space operations and space communications and things like that. Build on that expertise, broaden our expertise as well, but find our niche that we can say we are the best in the world or some of the best in the world at this. This is what Australia is good at. You need it for your space exploration, you come to us. We'll send you a satellite to launch on your rocket. Thank you very much. Yeah, I think it, that's, it, a, that's a great New Zealand, way of New Zealand it. have a rocket. New Zealand have a working <laughs> rocket. Okay, Flight 13 just blew up, but it's still they have a rocket. The Australians are working on it. A friend yeah. of mine works on their, uh, is on their electrical team that works on fuel pumps for that. So <laughs> Australia contributed. So there's a little bit of jealousy. Australia should have a rocket. Yeah, but realistically. <laughs> realistically, so, yes. So um, we'll start to wrap up now, but I suppose what is the one key advice that you want to give to undergraduate students and PhD students going into a career of science, or maybe even if they're not thinking about a career in science, how to navigate um, away from that, but still hold on to any skills that they would like to keep? Communication is important. All and learning widely is important. So lear learning hard skills as well as soft skills. Take the opportunities to learn new things. So the both at undergraduate levels and at PhD level, the university and other things you're involved in, whether it be clubs, will present you with various opportunities to learn new things. Uh, at an undergraduate level, it's do a summer internship. At a postgraduate level, it's things like Here's a workshop on how to program in this language or do this type of data analysis or machine learning, things like that. Learn how to do this, learn how to do that. Here's how to start and run a startup business. If something interests you, do it. Uh, go and learn that skill, go and try that thing. But along the way, make sure you can communicate. Communicate, we're humans, we communicate with each other. We need to be able to communicate what we're interested in, what we're doing, what we want to do, what our past, present and future hold, what our ideas are and where we are trying to push them. Communicate clearly and concisely, very important. Fantastic, yeah, I think from you know, a young age, communication is key, it has always been something that has been kind of ingrained into us and I think Going forward, that's something that we definitely always need to think about, communication with the lay audience, communication with your peers, um, and clear communication, as you've been saying. So I want to take this opportunity to thank you, David, so much for joining us. And I want to thank all the listeners for tuning in. Um, I'm just going to give a plug. In the next two weeks, we'll also hear from a past artist and TEDxCW speaker, Anne-Marie Anderson Mays. And you can also find more information about TEDxCWA through the Facebook and Instagram pages. And lastly, um, we look forward to tuning you in into the next CWA Alumni Voice podcast. So with that, I'd like to sign off. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And again, thank you so much, David, for having you on our podcast. And we really look forward to seeing where your future um, and career goes in the next 20 to 30 years. Thank <laughs> you for future. having me. It's been good. Thank time. you. Thank you so much. <laughs>